welcome uh, to Marysville Church of Nazarene. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Paul. It's good to see you all. Uh, good to see those that are joining us online. Uh, just, just a couple things to be aware of. You have welcome cards in front of you. I'd encourage you to take the time to, to fill those out. If you've joined us online, the welcome cards, uh, you can see them in the Facebook comments and you can join us in filling those out. Uh, you can leave these in your in your seat. It's just a good play, way to respond to the church office. You can put them in the giving boxes in the back of the sanctuary. We don't pass a plate, but we do receive offerings. We believe in offerings. Uh, I believe that giving is what God wants for you, not from you. And I've been blessed more by giving than I can begin to even explain. And so I'd encourage you to give. Uh, the giving boxes are back there. You can give online. Um, we have a couple things going on. Uh, not as many things as normal in December. Uh, next Sunday night at 6 p.m., we're, we're going to have a Christmas concert. And, and if you feel safe, we, we'd encourage you to come out. It's Billy Huddleston, 6 p.m., December 13th. Uh, we also have a couple Christmas Eve services. Usually our Christmas Eve service is packed, and so we're going to keep it set just like this. And instead of just offering one Christmas Eve service, we're going to offer two uh, at 6 and 7.30. So I'd encourage you uh, to, to come out and enjoy a Christmas Eve service if, if you feel safe. And, and then uh, Angel Tree, we're doing Angel Tree again this year. Gifts need to be in by Tuesday. And so if you forgot your gift and you need to make arrangements, uh, you can contact me. I put some cards in the back of the sanctuary on the table, and there's some in the Welcome Center as you come in. Feel free to take a card and, and text me or email. If you're, if you're listening to this online, uh, you can get my, uh, my email address from, from the church website, and we'd just uh, we'd love to hear from you and love to, uh, to get your angel tree gift so that we can distribute those. You guys look excited to be here? Yeah, yeah, a few of you are. That's good. Well, Amy's going to read some scripture, and I'm going to light a candle. <laughs> oh, am I on? This scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And I'm just going to say this is the Holy Spirit working because I didn't know about that verse, that that was the verse I was going to read till this morning, but it flows right into this next song that we're going to sing as you stand. We're going to sing about the tidings of comfort and joy that our God brings.
fleshed out the wonder of life. As you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form.
merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. Give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. the first Sunday in December, which means that we're switching to a new series. And our new series is called Wait For It. And so we have this idea about this present that you're like, oh, I just cannot wait to open it up and see what's inside. But it's not Christmas yet, so we need to wait for it. And when we use that phrase, sometimes it can almost have like two meanings. Like either you have to wait for something because there's no getting it here any faster, or Whatever you're waiting for is going to be worth the wait. And so I think Christmas kind of combines both of those. We can't wish it here any faster, but we know that it's going to be worth the wait. It's worth the time, worth the preparation. Now, I think I'm not alone in this, that my mailbox has been flooded with these coming from every company, Amazon, Target, Meyer, Kohl's. Everybody claims to know exactly what everybody on my list needs this year. And my kids have poured over this. This thing is getting so ratty and it is circled in every different color imaginable because this year they got really smart on me. Emerson says, I'll take green and Finley, you do purple and, and Reed, you do red. I, I can't remember which colors they picked, but the way they had it worked out is that if you already see it circled in a color, circle something else because that way we can cover more ground with our wish list. <laughs> And by the end, I think they had it tallied up, and Emerson's like, I only have 27, and, and Finley has 21, and I think, I think Reed's got like 30 things on his, but that, that should be okay, right? As I'm looking through here, I'm like, oh, okay. But then they took it a step further, and this is the part that just melted my heart. They started to make lists of everybody that they knew, and then they took a second look back through here. And I could hear the conversations as they started to pick out what they thought would be the perfect gift for somebody else. They would talk about things that they knew about this person, what they like, shows that they watch, maybe toys that they'd already seen at their house because they didn't want to accidentally get them something they already had. And then I could see them watching each other and they'd be like, did you hear the time that they mentioned this? And then they're flipping through the catalog like, I wonder if there's something for that. And so they're listening. They are trying to pinpoint the perfect thing for everybody that they know. And I'm going to be honest, they probably get that from me because I just love, I love finding that perfect thing for someone. And so some of you all, I know that you guys are like, nope, I just want gift cards. And I'm like, oh, come on. I'm like, is that because you either don't trust me to know you well enough to pick out something for you? Or like, you're afraid that maybe I know you well enough to pick out something for you. And like, you're like, ooh, that seems too close. But I love to find that perfect thing. And sometimes they open it up and they go, oh, you know, I didn't even know I needed this, but this is awesome. And those are the best ones when like you give somebody something that you're like, oh, I know you're going to love this. And they're sometimes they're like, what, what is this? And then you describe it and they're like, oh, oh, yeah, okay, great. And maybe they're just humoring me. I don't know. Now that I say that out loud, I'm like, hmm, I don't know. Maybe they're just humoring me. But when I think about how much we love to give gifts and how much we love to give good gifts, the right gift, the perfect gift, I'm always brought back to, to God, our Heavenly Father. And there's a verse in the Bible that says, if we love to give good gifts, like how much more does our Father in heaven want to give us good gifts? And his gifts 
are always good. We might not understand it. We might open it up and say, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with this right now. But his gifts are always good because he is good. And I just find it amazing as I sit here and I think through and I think about all the commercials I've seen and all the things that promise that this is the thing everybody needs. Everyone on your list would love this. That God looked down at all of humanity over time and he said, you know what? You know the one thing that everybody needs and the one thing that's going to cost me everything is a savior. And that he looked at all of us and he said, some of you don't even know it yet, but you need this and I'm going to send my son as a gift for the whole world. And so this week with the kids, that's what we're talking about. This idea that everyone needs a savior. We all need that. This is the one gift that everyone needs. And as he promised this savior from the very beginning, he promised it in, that he would come in unconventional ways. The wrapping might not look like what you expect. It might be the last present you think to open under the tree because it's not the one that's got the giant bow on it. He spoke through lots of unconventional speakers. And the things that he told them to be looking for did not in any way resemble what they thought a coming king, a coming messiah, a coming redeemer would look like. So today we're going to take a look at one of those, one of those speakers, John the Baptist, and the way that he was instrumental in telling the people, hey, the wait is almost over. You've been waiting a whole long time. The wait's almost over. The kingdom of God is near. So I'm going to invite Pastor Paul to share with us a little bit about John the Baptist. Thank you, Pastor Mara. Once again, just always so awesome to hear Pastor Mara and pa Pastor Josh as they share. Don't you enjoy them? Why don't you give her a hand today? I, I know I enjoy their next-gen moments. Um, when I use the word disruption, what do you think of? You know, does the word have, when I say disrupt or disruption, does it, does it automatically have negative connotations for you? I mean, I, I think we can think disruption, we can think of the negative connotations of the word. Say, so you have major car trouble, you know, that's a, that's a disruption. You, you, you have um, some, some sort of relational or family problem, that's, that's a disruption. You have, you have a, a, a sickness, uh, that's a disruption. COVID-19, 2020 has been a disruption, and all God's people said, right? You know, so, so that, that you can think of the negative uh, implications of the word disruption. I, I looked up the definition. Disrupt means to interrupt the normal course. And, and so it has negative connotations, but the word disruption also has positive connotations. Um, February 8th, 1992, uh, Terry and I got married. Um, that was a disruption to my single life, but it was a positive disruption. I, I'm a better person because of, of Terry. On March 17, 1994, Wyatt was born in between the afternoon sessions and the evening sessions of the NCAA tournament on a Thursday, uh, you know, just so we could watch all the way up to birth. That was an interruption of our normal life, but it was a great interruption. Then on uh, December 11, 1996, Dylan was born, our second child, and, and that was further disruption to our home. And then on March 5th, 2002, little Spencer was born, who's bigger than all of us now, and more disruption. I've heard and, and people say that when you have one child, don't complain, you can double team them. 
When you have two child, children, it, it's still man-to-man -man defense. When you have three children, you have to drop back in a zone, right? <laughs> and when you have four children, you have to drop back in prevent defense. Now, I don't know, what, what defense are the Greens in? They just hunker down and survive, you know? So, so you know, they're, they're disruptions, but they're good disruption. As we sang about creation and the normal course of events and, and God speaking creation into being, uh, that's a disruption that, that our God spoke and disrupted the normal course of events and created uh, this world. Christmas <laughs> is a disruption. And I, and I think that's, that's fair to say in a, in a number of ways. Um, apparently, some of you listen to Christmas music all year round, so I won't go there. But if you have a large inflated Santa Claus in your front year yard year round, your neighbors will probably talk, right? And so we do things around Christmas time that disrupt the normal course of event. We, we may eat a little bit more. Uh, we may spend a little bit more money. As a matter of fact, most of us spend a little bit more money. We'll, we'll, we'll spend more time with people, and, and that's a good thing. We'll, we'll interrupt our normal routine. And, and so Christmas is a disruption. And it's a good disruption, but it is a disruption to our normal routine. In the past few years, there's been a, a new business phrase that came out of Harvard Law School called disruptive innovation. And I'm not going to give you the, the technical defini definition, uh, but, but basically it's a process or it's an invention or it's an innovation that, that begins uh, below the normal business models and works its way through and it radically alters the availability of a product to the vast majority of people. And, and so examples would be personal computers. You know, personal computers have changed over the years. When I was um, talking to uh, Chris Davis and, and Ryan Castle last night, and I have an iPad in front of me. When I went to law, when I went to college, uh, they had a, a computer the size of a room, right? And so, being a good Nazarene kid, I had to create a program. And of course, as a good Nazarene kid, I created a blackjack game, um, which fit perfectly into into the school. And uh, but, but it was a, the size of a room, and, and it does not have the power of, of or the speed of this little iPad sitting in front of me. And so, computers have radically changed things. When when Wyatt was in kindergarten, they had computers, and, and he asked me, he said, Dad did they have computers when you were in kindergarten? And I said, Wyatt, they didn't have computers when I was in law school, okay? So it's radically changed how, how available information is to people. Um, cell phones, uh, you know, it, we're, we're not tied to a, a line anymore. All these things are disruptive innovations. Uh, one of the classic ones is Ford's assembly line. Who drove to work today or drove to church today? I drove to work. Who drove to church, right? Didn't walk, have a car in your garage, have a car in front of your house. Um, Ford's assembly line, not, not the invention of the car, but the assembly line was a disruptive innovation in that in a reasonable price, everyone could get a vehicle. And, and Ford is famous for saying, any customer can have a car painted any color that he wants so long as it's black. <laughs> and so this was a disruptive innovation. And so disruptive innovations 
change, alter uh, the lives of ordinary people. And so personal computers and cell phones and all these things have altered our lives. Uh, Christmas is a disruptive innovation. And what happens in the Christmas season, what happens with Jesus, disrupts and changes everything forever for our good and for our benefit. Uh, for, so the next four weeks, we're going to look at John the Baptist the next two weeks. And then we're going to look at Mary, Mary and Simeon. And, and, and we're going to talk about how did Christmas disrupt ordinary people's lives? What, what is this awesome disruption that, that maybe we grow so accustomed to seeing things being done in this way that, that we kind of miss what God has done through Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locust and wild honey. As he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, now all four Gospels talk about John, John the Baptist. And Mark, the Gospel of Mark, leads with John the Baptist. All four Gospels connect the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the, to the ministry of John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, it, it almost appears that Jesus is at some level, at some point, a disciple, a follower, uh, involved in the ministry of John the Baptist, his cousin. Um, John is a cousin of Jesus. He's a wild-eyed prophet in the wilderness. He's the last prophet. And now God is going to speak through Jesus Christ. And Hebrews says God is going to speak in a better way, that, that he's spoken through prophets, and now God is going to speak in the best way that he can through Jesus Christ, his son. And this doesn't invalidate John. It doesn't invalidate John's message. And even John acknowledges, okay, someone's coming after me that their message is going to be better and fuller and full of life. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. And so I have something to say and I want you to hear it, but there's one coming after me that's better. But John is significant. And he's, he comes with this baptism. I got to tell you, this is one of the things I, I've looked at John's baptism and have considered John's baptism. And, and I don't know that I've really ever seen uh, a complete good answer of what's going on in John's baptism. Uh, John's baptism or baptism was not unique to John. Jo John is not the first person to baptize. That there were people at the time of Jesus that were baptizing or doing similar things to John the Baptist. 
Um, one thing would be a proselyte baptism. In other words, if somebody was Gentile and they wanted to become Jewish, then they would be baptized and they would come out of the baptismal water reborn as a Jewish person. It was, it was like they were being reborn, coming out of the water. It's connected to the ideal of creation and, and creation coming out of the water. And, and so they were coming out of the, the water, a new creation, Jewish. The, 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 but these were Jewish people being baptized. And so you have baptisms, you have saints who were doing purification baptisms. And so they would dip people and it would be a cleansing thing. And so you had people doing that. And some believe that John has some connection to these Essenes because they would be in the wilderness and calling people to repentance and this baptism of cleansing. But he doesn't seem quite connected to them. He's baptizing Jewish people, but he's baptizing in the dirty Jordan River. And so if this was a cleansing ritual, this is not the place that you would do it. Now, there's two stories that come to mind when I think about John's baptism. And I think of the prophet that followed Elijah, Elisha. And the story with Nahum, you know the story, Nahum's this, this general for Aram, and he's, he's an enemy of Israel, and he has leprosy, and he goes to Israel to be healed, and he ends up with Elisha, and Elisha says, well, go dip in the Jordan River, and you'll be cleansed. Cleansed, and, and this general goes, you know, that's the dirtiest river I know. If I wanted to be cleansed, I'd go to a much cleaner river than this, and yet his servant says, listen, you came all this way. If he told you to do something lesser, wouldn't you do it? And so he goes and dips in the Jordan River, and he's cleansed. So that story comes to mind because, you know, it's a prophet commanding people to be dipped in the Jordan River. The story of him claiming the land, when they came out of the wilderness and they'd wandered for 40 years, what did they cross? They crossed the Jordan River, and I believe what John's doing in his baptism, as he is inviting people to a fresh start. As I read this story, I can't help but see the implications of this new Elijah who shows up where Elijah left off, and he's inviting the people to come back into the land with a fresh start. So there's these images of cleansing, these images of, of fresh starts, and it's all connected to John's baptism. And there's also this this ideal of repentance. Now, now, repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry and doing the same things again, right? Anybody ever have anybody apologize to you and then just do the same thing to you again, right? That's not repentance, okay? That's false. And repentance is something deeper than that. N.T. Wright explains repentance as a serious turning away from the patterns of life which deface and distort our genuine humanness. In other words, it's a 180-degree turn. It's not just saying, I'm sorry, but it's, I'm sorry, and I'm going to change the way I live. So I think it's important to see, before we go much further, that when God sends John the Baptist, he's inviting us to life change, not simply religious observation. That what John is offering it is not just, okay, let's make ourselves feel better 
But John is offering this possibility that, that maybe even ordinary people, maybe even tax collectors, maybe even Roman soldiers can live in a better way. That, that God is not just offering this, this pill that makes us feel better about ourselves, but he's offered us this opportunity to, to live in a more liberated, a freer, a better way. And so John baptizes tax collectors and he baptizes Roman soldiers and they ask him, what should I do? And the tax collector says, just don't take any more than you're supposed to take. And it's pretty simple. Just don't steal from the people. For the Roman soldiers, he says a very similar thing. Don't, don't take something or demand something that you don't have to demand. And so he's inviting them to this fresh start. And he's inviting people to experience God in a new way. Not connected, not connected to Jerusalem, not connected to their current religious leaders, not collected, connected to their sacrificial system, not connected to all the things they have to go through, all the cleansing rituals, but fully experiencing life in God's kingdom through this baptism. Now, this ideal of fully experiencing God is, is not unique to John either. You know, the baptism is not unique. All these things aren't unique. The, the Essenes, the Pharisees, they, they are all offering a very similar thing. But, but theirs was based on performance. If you get everything right, if you do all the right things, if you say all the right things, if you go through all the right rituals, you'll experience what God wants. And you'll fully experience God. And the truth was, at the time of John, very few people could live in that way. That's why Jesus, when Jesus encounters Peter, and, and he does the miraculous catch of fish, and, and Peter's in the boat, what's Peter say to Jesus? He says, don't mess with me, I'm a sinner. In other words, Peter's saying, listen, I know all the things that I need to do. I understand that you're a holy guy. I understand that you're somebody significant. I understand that you're calling me to something more, but I've tried it and I can't do it. I can't. I'm just a simple fisherman. I can't go through all the motions and the rituals and, and, and I'm just a sinner. Just leave me alone. I can't live that life. I can't meet all the expectations of religious folks. Maybe saying this, I live in the real world. <laughs> you know, I sometimes wonder, you know, as a pastor, and I think that's one of the draws that's drawing me back to doing some work stuff, because it seems so difficult for me to sit in this seat as your pastor when I work in the church and I work with Christian people and that's all I do and that's the expectations of me, and then I expect you to go to your workplace and live differently. And I think some of you look at me and say, well, if I worked at church, it'd be a lot easier. Who would say amen to that, right? We were at church all the time, it'd be a lot easier. And so I think Peter's saying, listen, you know, I live in the real world, Jesus. There's, I've got to feed my family. There's things that I've got to do. And John and Jesus are saying, listen, <laughs> I know what all these other religious folks are saying, but I'm telling you there's life in the real world. 
that, that ordinary people, that sinners, that tax collectors, that Roman soldiers can live this. And John's baptizing. Now, at the time of John, the understanding was that if they could just practice a perfect Sabbath, they would usher in God's kingdom. That's what they were trying to do. There was many that believed if everyone could just one, one Sabbath day exercise a perfect Sabbath, then we would usher in God's full reign, God's kingdom. If we'd have just perfect performance one day. And so they're believing that everything's dependent on their performance, on them getting it right. And here's John at the Jordan River baptizing. And he's baptizing not just people who seemingly have everything together, but he's baptizing tax collectors and Roman soldiers and sinners. In other words, Luke is saying He's baptizing the worst of the worst. No way they're part of the kingdom. Yet John invites them to turn, to repent, and be baptized to trust God. So here's our disruptive innovation. We experience the kingdom by turning and trusting, not through religious, perfect religious performance. That that's the invitation, that, that John is inviting us to turn and trust, that Jesus is inviting us to turn and trust, and the beginning of the kingdom is in turning and trusting, not perfect religious performance. Why does it matter? It matters because it can begin immediately. That, that, that there's not a stage in your life that you can turn and trust and you can begin experiencing the kingdom. And it's not like it's going to happen 10 years later when you finally get your life fully together. But in turning and trusting, you're becoming part of the kingdom. You don't need to be at a certain spot in your life, no certain age. It's never too late. God wants you to turn and trust right where you are. Then He'll begin the work within you. So my question for you today is... What's holding you back from starting in the right direction, if you've not? See, John's message was like a breath of fresh air. <laughs> even ordinary people, even sinners and tax collectors had hope. I always think about Matthew. Matthew's, you know, he's, he's Matthew and he's also Levi, right? So Matthew has this great Jewish name. And so, I, you know, I always wonder about backstory. Anybody like that that wonders about the backstories of these guys? I do. And I, I kind of feel that, that Levi Matthew had these high hopes when he was young, that, that, that there was this thoughts that he was going to be this religious leader, religious person, and somehow his life went off the track. And there he finds himself in a tax collector's booth as far from God in their perspective as you can be. And Jesus is saying, hey, I don't care where you've been. I don't care where you are. You can be a part. And that's the breath of fresh air. Ordinary people can, be, can respond. Outsiders were invited inside. Or inside. Now, now here is the rub with this passage. Who didn't understand John's message? Same people didn't understand Jesus' message originally. Pharisees. The conflict between Jesus, which you wouldn't think there would be conflict between Jesus and Pharisees because they were all, you know, Pharisees were good people. 
These were good religious people. These were church members, board members. These were Sunday school teachers. These people mowed their yards, right? These people decorated their homes for Christmas and did things. They, they gave money to the poor. These were good people. They gave to the church. Why didn't they get it? They, they liked being alone in their religiosity. They, they, they liked that they had gotten it all together and, and they had figured out the habits of the lifestyle and it kind of set them apart. As we move through this disruptive innovation, um, the last week we're going to talk about being exclusive or inclusive and God receives glory by us being in, inclusive, not exclusive. You understand that, right? And so the Pharisees were exclusive. They, they, were, they, they were the ones that could say, that, you know, that there were no cigarette butts in our parking lot. You know what the worst thing I think a church could say? Is there's nobody in our midst that's different than us. See, here's the truth. And, and I'm speaking for myself. Maybe... Maybe this isn't you, but this, as I read these passages, my fear is not that I become a tax collector or a Roman soldier. My fear is that I become a Pharisee. Right? That in the church, the danger is not that we're all of a sudden we're going to become sinners and tax collectors and Roman soldiers. That in these stories, the people we need to watch are the Pharisees because they become dependent on their religious performance to please God. Do you need Christmas to disrupt your religious self-reliance this morning? Maybe that's where you're at. Because can we all admit the longer we're in church, the easier it is to do this? Most people in this room know what the good good words are and the bad words, right? <laughs> All right, you know you know what to say, how to look, what to dress, how to dress, and we can become so dependent on that that we can begin to look at other people as lesser or outside when God is calling us all the same, just to turn and trust. You know, this is one of those weird messages for me. Um, sometimes I've got my ending written. Most times, almost, almost every week, I know exactly how I'm going to close. You know, and, and, and this week, as I've worked through this, I don't know. And, and so sometimes, sometimes it's just that I'm dumb, okay? I just didn't figure it out. But sometimes, because I, I do believe as a, as a pastor, I'm dependent on God. <laughs> I am. I, I, I believe that, you know, I believe God tells me what to say. Sometimes I do better, sometimes I do worse, but, but I'm dependent on God. And sometimes when I don't have how you close, I think maybe that's because God wants to do something. <laughs> so I'm just going to ask you, all heads bowed, all eyes closed, our altars are always available. Maybe you've become too self-reliant. Maybe you need to step out. So I'm asking to put, put music on. We're just going to wait. I'm not going to twist your arms.
But I just invite you to be honest and to be brave enough to step out if God's speaking to you. But just by a raise of hand, say, Pastor, God's talking to me and I'm listening. Just, just lift your hands real quickly and I can see him. Put him down. Let's pray together. Lord, as I read these stories, the people I want to identify with are often not the ones that I'd naturally identify with. That we read these stories and we see Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners and Roman soldiers and and we think, well, I connect more with the sinners and the Roman soldiers and the tax collectors, but the truth is the temptation and the fear that we should have is that we connect with Pharisees. Most of the people in this room, Lord, would, would, would espouse some faith, some level of belief in you. And yet at the time of Jesus, there were many religious people that had all sorts of religious views and theology that, that would have went to their grave saying they believed in God. But they were practicing atheists and that they didn't really believe in Jesus. They became self-reliant, dependent on self. Lord, I don't want to be dependent on myself. I want to depend on you. So, so help us all now, Lord, just to, to have a level of self-awareness, a, a level of um, understanding of our own motives, that if there's something amiss, if there's something wrong, if your spirit is speaking, that we will turn and trust. Lord, there's lots of things that can mar people's lives. The Pharisees, they saw all the sins that marred others' lives. And they didn't see the sin that marred their life. They didn't see their self-pride and dependence, self-dependence. But Lord, that's just as damaging and it's so seductive. So Lord, I love you. I thank you that you're not finished with me. That every day, you're teaching me more and more what it means to radically follow you. And sometimes it's not easy. But Lord, it's always worth it. So I pray your blessing on these, your folks. You love them. Everyone in this room is someone you came and died so that they could have eternal life. And not just life everlasting after we die, but life here and now. So I pray, Lord, that your spirit will come, your spirit will move, and as your people are filled by your spirit, they will move at your urging, in your direction, in your way. Give us your eyes to see. Give us your heart to feel. Allow us to use our hands to be your hands, and may your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
God bless.